You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is um, Rowan Conway. Happy New Year. This is the first of the year's public lectures. Um, I am Director of Innovation and Development here at the RSA, and I'm delighted to welcome you here for our first event. We're delighted to have a very special guest speaker with us today. Alex Evans is Senior Fellow at the New York University Centre on International Cooperation. Over the last two decades, Alex has worked on global issues in the UN Secretary General's Office as Special Advisor to two UK Secretaries of State for International Development and as a consultant for organisations from Oxfam to the US National Intelligence Council, all of which this experience has contributed to his new book, The Myth Gap. He joins us today to argue why we need to overcome this contemporary myth gap, a deficit that we see left behind as we spent the last 10 or 20 years arguing vehemently on a rational scientific basis the major big issues of our time, such as climate change, poverty and inequality. In his book, that he suggests that to address these challenges greatly of sustainability, we need to go beyond technical thinking or technocratic thought and really get back into rethinking the deep stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. So please join me in welcoming Alex. Over to you. Thank you very much, Rowan, and thank you all for coming here today. So here's my argument in a nutshell. If we want to change the world, then what we most need isn't evidence, it isn't data, it isn't policy proposals. What we need is stories. Now, in a way, no one is more surprised about this than me because, um, as Rowan has just set out, I'm a policy wonk, not a communications expert. As anyone who's worked with me over the last 20 years will readily confirm, I'm a complete nerd. I actually love evidence, data, and policy proposals. I get excited about killer facts and slam-dunk pie charts. I have spent much of my life wishing I was Josh Lyman in the West Wing. (laughs) Throughout this period, what I really thought was that changing the world was a matter of getting the right evidence to the right policymakers, and then change would naturally follow. I don't think that anymore. And I guess if I had to pick out a moment of epiphany where I really got this properly, it was back in 2011. I was in a small room at the UN's headquarters in New York. And in the room with me were a couple of dozen prime ministers and presidents and foreign ministers and ambassadors from the US, the EU, China, Brazil, and so on. And the the reason we were all there was that this was the final meeting of the UN's high-level panel on global sustainability. And this was a body that had been set up by the Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, to design the agenda for a big summit on sustainable development that was due to take place the following year. And the reason I was in the room was that I was the panel's writer. I was the person charged with finding the, the right words to reflect the collective sentiments and visions and aspirations of the panel's members in the report that they were supposed to be putting together. Now, this, I should explain, was my dream job. I had felt for years that a panel like this would give policymakers a chance to step back from all the day-to-day firefighting and really think about the hardest dilemmas involved in managing an interdependent world. Dilemmas like how to deal with the massive questions of fair shares that start arising once you have the global economy beginning to hit natural limits. Since, as Gandhi put it, there's enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. Above all, I hoped that a process like this would rise above the endless bickering of G8s and G20s and G77s and all the rest, 
and start to think and act instead like a G1, a group, in other words, that would recognize that we all lived on one planet and needed to act accordingly. But more than that, would get out there and start really championing the solutions needed. More fool me, as it turned out, because what I actually saw that day at UN headquarters was a perfect illustration of what's been called the G0, a world in which no leaders are prepared to think beyond their national interests or show vision on the toughest global issues. And as the last vestiges of my naivety fell away, I realized that far from coming up with big answers, the panel's members would barely be willing to acknowledge the questions. And amid all the disillusionment, I lost my conviction that rational arguments backed up by hard evidence would be enough to persuade politicians of the need for radical change to build the fairer, more sustainable world that I wanted, which left me wondering, if evidence and arguments aren't enough, then what is? Well, I thought about that question a lot in the years that followed, especially after I moved with my family to Ethiopia in 2012 for my wife's job in international development. Suddenly, all the issues I'd been writing about for so long, refugees, droughts, food crises, were staring me right in the face, not as pie charts, but as real-life stories of real people facing real hardship. And I thought about that question again as I watched from thousands of miles away as Donald Trump secured the Republican nomination and as the Brexit campaign triumphed. In both cases, not because of facts or evidence or data, but because the resonance of the stories that they told, stories about making America great again, stories of taking back control, stories that played expertly on fears of a shadowy other and on building walls to keep them out. Stories I started to realize had a raw power that pie charts and pamphlets never would. And as I watched the dramas of 2016 play out, I also had a strange sense of deja vu, because the Trump and the Brexit victories were all too similar to what I'd seen happen on climate change back in 2009. Back then, climate activists were technocrats, insiders, data-rich, evidence-based. And until 2009, it looked as though this approach was working. You just had a US presidential election fought between two candidates, Barack Obama and John McCain, who both agreed that tackling climate change was an urgent priority. Better yet, the House of Representatives had just passed the US's first climate bill. All that needed to happen now was for the bill to clear the Senate. It was supposed to be a walk in the park, except that it wasn't. No one had noticed a new phenomenon called the Tea Party, which proceeded, as climate writer David Roberts put it, to spend the summer invading town halls, dominating talk radio and Fox News, and generally scaring the bejesus out of Republican legislators. And by the time the Senate came back from its summer break, prospects for US climate legislation had fallen apart. Six months after that, the UN climate summit in Copenhagen fell apart too. As the dust settled, stunned environmental NGOs commissioned Theda Skokpol, a Harvard political scientist, to explain to them what the hell just happened. Her answer back to them, the Tea Party played an outsider, populist, values-led game against the NGO's insider, technocrat, fact-led game, and ran over them with a tank. Sound familiar? But here's the good news. Climate activists learned their lesson. They got smart. They realized that if they wanted to beat the Tea Party at its own game, then they needed to look far beyond policymakers and pie charts. Instead, 
they realized they would need to build the kind of mass movement that's in the past one, the abolition of slavery, or establish new civil rights like equal marriage, or secure the write-off of billions of dollars worth of third world debt. And they did it. If you fast forward to summer 2014, you find climate activists mobilizing half a million people onto the streets of New York, closing down production at Germany's largest coal mine, taking to the Pacific in flotillas of kayaks to stop oil rigs from being towed out to sea, and the Pope writing an entire papal encyclical about climate change, and President Obama giving one climate speech after another, and the 2015 Climate Summit in Paris ending with activists in a state of euphoria as governments agreed a new target of zero emissions by 2050. How did the climate activists do it? In large part, through stopping being policy wonks and reinventing themselves as storytellers, as myth makers. So what do we mean by myths? Well, not so long ago, our society was rich in stories. Stories that helped us to understand the world and ourselves. Stories about where we are, how we got here, where we're trying to go, and underneath it all, who we really are. Stories that gave us meaning and identity and purpose. We call these stories myths. Some of them were rooted in religions. Others told of heroes and quests. But all of them, in their different ways, had deep truths to teach us. Truths about wisdom and ignorance. Truths about good and evil. Truths about grief or guilt and redemption. Today, we've largely forgotten those old stories. Things are either literally, scientifically true, or they're not true at all. A myth has come to mean something that's just wrong, like an urban myth. If you look myth up in the thesaurus, you find it in the same entry as bunk, crock, fabrication, fiction, and hogwash. And along the way, we've lost those old stories that used to help us make sense of the world, but without replacing them with new ones. Instead, we have what I call a myth gap, a phrase I've borrowed from the writer Jonas Sachs. It's a kind of a flatland of culture wars and social media echo chambers, entertainment distraction, and ever shorter attention spans. So what you might ask, does all this have to do with politics, economics, and how we shape the future of our societies? Well, I think the answer is everything. Writing just before the First World War, at the end of another long period of globalization and innovation and connectedness, Carl Jung saw all too clearly the risks of what he called the man who thinks he can live without myth. Such a person, he wrote, is like one uprooted, having no true link either with the past or the ancestral life within him, or yet with contemporary society. What Jung understood was that without shared myths to bind societies together, the risks increased dramatically of fragmentation, polarization, and conflict, just as we see all around us today. In these kinds of conditions, in the myth gap that we now inhabit, it's all too easy for dark anti-myths to fill the void. One example of an anti-myth, expertly propagated by the new myth-makers of the marketing industry and explored by Jonas Sachs in his book Winning the Story Wars, is the myth that you are what you buy. And if the idea of that is almost metaphysical, then the consequences, in terms of consumerism or ecosystem loss or climate change, are anything but. Or consider the myth of what I call collapsitarianism, the story that as environmental pressures increase, we'll find that there isn't enough of everything to go around, and so we need to grab enough for ourselves before others do. This myth, too, can have all too tangible real-world expressions, from the Nazi idea of Lebensraum in the 1930s 
to the kind of international land grab deals that we see happening today. There's real danger here. If the stories that we reach for in conditions of turbulence and crisis and uncertainty are stories about overshoot and collapse, and we all start to act accordingly, competing rather than cooperating, fragmenting rather than coming together, then those stories can all too easily become self-fulfilling prophecies. And this is really, I think, the most important point about myths. They create our reality as much as they describe it. As the novelist Terry Pratchett once put it, people think that stories are shaped by people. Actually, it's the other way around. And yet still, far too often, political progressives try and fight these hugely resonant stories with policy memos. As if rational arguments and empirical data will somehow win out against brilliant political narratives of the little guy versus remote elites, or corrupt politicians only out to line their own pockets, or vast conspiracies to falsify climate change data. Almost as if they think that victory will be secured by the side with the most detailed footnotes. That was the mistake made by climate campaigners back in 2009. It was the same mistake that the Remain campaign made during the Brexit referendum here in the UK. And it was the mistake that paved the way for Trump to win the US presidency. All of which makes me wonder, what if rather than spending all our time fact-checking Donald Trump's tweets or bemoaning the perfidy of the Brexiteers' infamous claim that EU membership costs Britain £350 million a week, what if progressives became storytellers of the right kinds of myths? Myths that unite us rather than dividing us. I think the kind of myths we need at this point in history share a few key themes. And most importantly, they need us to help us think in terms of a larger us, a longer now, and a different good life. Number one, first, we need myths that change how we see our place in the world by prompting us to think of ourselves as part of a larger us than ever before. I think at its heart, the whole story arc of human history is about how we've kept becoming part of and identifying with a larger and larger us. Over and over again, from wandering Neolithic survival bands to settled chiefdoms, all the way through to modern nation states and global diasporas, the circle of empathy keeps expanding. And now we're poised right at the edge of seeing ourselves as part of a truly global us, an us that includes all seven billion of the world's people. Now, the anti-myths of Farage and Trump and Le Pen explicitly set out to oppose that. So we need to take them on with stories about what can happen and what we can create together if and when we do take that final step to a genuinely global us. I think the second thing we need is myths that shift how we see our place in time, situating ourselves in a longer now that stands midway between a deep past and an equally deep future. The futurist Stuart Brand has written that our technological capacities are now so enormous that we are as gods and might as well act like it. And what he means by this is that our ingenuity needs to be matched by wisdom if we're to avoid the fate of Icarus. And that means slowing down, taking a far longer view than we've been accustomed to doing in recent decades, expanding the now that we inhabit so that we measure it not in seconds, but in generations. And third, we need myths that help us aspire to a different good life, one in which growth is less about how much we consume and more about finally growing up as a species. Because I think many of us feel at some intuitive level that we've been living through humanity's adolescence, 
reckless, rebellious, focused on instant gratification, testing the limits. And now we're alive at just the moment at which our species is on the very cusp of maturity. Not just recognizing our responsibilities or the consequences of our actions, but actually finding a sense of meaning and identity and purpose about what it is we're here on Earth to do. A larger us, a longer now, and a different good life. None of these are new ideas. All of them recur over and over again in the history of our myths for thousands of years now. But today, we risk, we risk forgetting them because we don't have the stories that embody them. So we need to get them back and fast. So that's what the book's about. And in its final part, it sets out some ideas for how we can go about rebuilding these myths, which perhaps we can explore in discussion. But for now, I will leave it there. And thank you all very much again for coming. That was a, a really good run-through of the concept of the myth gap. And I think it would be good for us to try and tease out some of those deeper themes that you bring up in the book um, you talk about us growing up as a species. That's, that's, there's some, some big thinking there around what does it take for us to move into a, an adult zone away from the adolescent zone. Um, and, and actually moving away from that kind of market-driven or marketing-driven thinking is also a, a big theme in your book. But I think that's probably where I want to start. I'd, I'd like to explore those key themes um, around a larger us and a longer now and a different kind of good life. But starting with that good life, and going beyond that concept of you are what you buy. I think that's an interesting place to start, possibly, because um, possibly the the story hasn't necessarily been missing in the the policy wonk zone. Um, Yes, the rational data or the truth has been sought, but there's also been a a huge amount of comms, a huge amount of communications in this sphere. Um, But what I pulled from your book and from your presentation was this, that it's been very much in this time-limited fear zone, you know, to that great word, the collapsitarian, Um, you know, actually imminent collapse, imminent invasion, urgent demand, 10-year timeframes, things that have to happen really quickly. So my, my question is, is how do we start thinking about that different good life when we are so, if you like, adrenally connected to fear-driven stories, especially in ever more so in an, in an era of social media. Yeah, interesting one. Well, I think that we're starting to do it. I mean, of course, you know, in the world of policy wonkery, there's an awful lot of critiques out there now of uh, policy focusing in a single-minded way on pursuing economic growth. So we've had this whole discourse emerge over the last decade of well-being, together with all sorts of metrics with which you can measure it. I think that's interesting and a step in the right direction, but still kind of baby steps, because I think really when I think of the idea of a different good life, I'm thinking of purpose as the really defining uh, trait of it, a sense of um, having some place to go. And I think that part of the condition at the moment is we're not sure where we're trying to go, what utopias we're trying to build. Um, And so for me, that's very much part of this idea of a different good life. It's actually the development into a, a more a different kind of time. I think Joanna Macy refers to it as deeper time, so that you're not actually thinking so quickly. You know, just just playing to your point about well-being metrics. You know, it's the difference between someone knocking on your door with a survey saying, "How are you feeling today?" Right, that's well-being sorted, right. Right. Um, and actually a sense of long-term well-being and understanding that these things have ebbs and flows, and trying to communicate that that might be different. 
And a sense of some shared undertaking of something we're trying to create together. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, when we're in that headspace of threat and risk and, you know, it's the kind of reptile brain doing fight or flight, you're in a very particular realm of behavior. When you slow down and you're in that very different kind of creative mind space, um, that's obviously a much richer territory from which to operate. And I think that the idea of a different good life is also about that. Mm. So it's maybe moving from an action orientation to something that's more more sentient, more, th- more thoughtful, potentially. Um, I was very, when, when you talk about the larger us and um, thinking about a global we, there are a lot of tensions in that. Insofar as if you think, um, you know, there's been quite a major kickback on the global we um, mm-hmm. with some, some quite, you know, unexpected results in the last couple of years. Mm. Um, so the idea of being able to unite, I think you called it a circle of empathy, how, how can we do that? How can we think about ourselves as a global collective? What will it take? Well, I think, I mean, as I've argued, I think it, part of it is about different kind of political campaigning. But one of the things I take encouragement from is I think that's starting to happen um, and really starting to happen apace in the wake of the Trump and Brexit victories. So, for instance, here in the UK, um, one of the things that's just come together in the last few months is More United, which is a, a cross-party political movement um, that makes that kind of explicit reference to Joe Cox MP's um, idea in her maiden speech in Parliament that we're more united than divided. We have more in common than that, which divides us. And it's a very heart-on-sleeve, values-led movement um, that's saying, yeah, we're going to disagree on the specifics of policy, but we are first and foremost about unity, where people like Farage are about division, about a, a them-and-us mentality rather than a larger us. Or in the US, post-Trump, um, Van Jones, who I think is one of the most kind of interesting and articulate political activists there, is creating a new thing called the Love Army, which is kind of, it's almost cheesy, but I love it because it's absolute heart-on-sleeve, values-led. There's a great story there. So I think progressives are starting to, to stop being technocrats and be much more values-led, and that's exactly what's needed. It's interesting to, to reflect back, though, on the, on the pace and the time limitation, because when we think in a campaign... Um, what our, our head of marketing recently said to me, well, what, what's happened with recent Facebook for, for business tools is that actually we've got kind of nuclear-grade marketing tools in the hands of everybody. Um, and actually, so we're not talking about the marketeers anymore, which are the Saatchi and Saatchi of the world who could say, well, I, could, I have some deep insights about people. Actually, everybody can have deep insights about people and create campaigns. So actually, how do we think about these myths going beyond a campaign? I think that's such a great point. Um, and one of, the, one of the things in the in the book that I talk about is, so I think collective storytelling can be enormously rich. And we've seen um, instances of political transitions where um, there have been very conscious efforts to create national conversations, most famously in the case of South Africa, where as apartheid was ending, there was an enormous nationwide scenario planning process which came up with four stories about possible futures for South Africa and really helped to create a sense of kind of shared awareness. And what's interesting about what you just said is that, uh, as you observe, we're about to get all of these superpowers on storytelling, um, not just from social media, but especially as we move into um, ready availability of virtual and mixed reality, to the extent that people like Kevin Kelly, who founded Wired, says, you know, not long from now, this is going to be how all of us experience the Internet. It won't be on a screen anymore. We're going to be in it. And the thing is that just as the World Wide Web used to be something that um, we just read that other people wrote, and then we had Web 2.0 and suddenly we were all creating it, 
with virtual and mixed reality, from the get-go, we are all going to be creating these enormously immersive worlds. And the worlds aren't real, but the experiences we have in them are. And everyone will have access to those creative powers, for ill as well as for good. And so in a way, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm very hopeful that these will become platforms for you know, enormous flowerings of kind of the right kind of stories, but the wrong kind will flourish on there as well. Um, the stakes are getting raised across the board, if you like. You can perhaps take, take um, some comfort in the fact that actually kitten, kittens get a lot of traction on, on social media, so therefore there is love there. There is a desire to see a big story of you know, happiness rather than um, you know, fear-driven anti-myths. But I mean, just, just, just on that, I, mean, I think there's some really interesting cases of where um, virtual reality is st starting to transform politics. So Princeton has just put together a project where you can go to the bottom of the ocean and experience ocean acidification happening around you. That is going to have a kind of immediacy that a pie chart or a report never will. Well, the, the example I really love is that the UN now has a creative director. They're late to that party, but they do have one. And last year at the UN General Assembly, for the first time, as delegates arrived, they were offered the opportunity to put on virtual reality goggles and go to a refugee camp in Syria and actually um, be walked around by Syrian refugees. And the person who was running this kind of little stall in the lobby of the UN reported that it wasn't unusual at all to get the goggles back wet with tears. And I mean, I've been to a lot of UN General Assemblies. These are you know, cynical places where everyone's heard it all before. No one's listening to anyone else. Everyone's just reading out their talking points. I think it's very, very interesting when you have that kind of emotional response, that kind of empathy in a situation like that. Immersive experiences. I think there's an interesting question about the immersive experience in the reptilian brain, though, because, right. you know, if I see ocean acidification, I become a collapsitarian, don't I? Well, possibly. So, as you say, I mean, these, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> so, trying to understand how to use these tools is a, right. is a key thing. Yeah. However, what I'm hearing there, so when we, we talk about a larger us and the global we, we're not just talking about, you know, can we all collectively come together around a key theme, but more actually, how do we understand empathically ourselves and, and wake up? possibly wake up outside of our roles. You talked about when people were coming together um, at, the, at the summits that there was no leader thinking beyond their own interests. Mm. Um, I would probably say, are they, were they thinking beyond their own remit, you know, which is possibly different right. because rather than self-interested, it's actually I have a remit and responsibility to my remit. So to then think beyond that to the collective, what are we as we, mm. requires empathy that I care about you not empathy that I care about your remit necessarily. The problem that we are working on together right. is, the, is the thing for us to work towards. So that's where I'm interested in how do we start waking people up? What does it take to actually emotionally engage? You talked a little bit about uh, when, we, when we spoke earlier around these kind of Churchillian mm -hmm. you know, moments of how we really wake people up. What, what are your thoughts on well, I mean, I do think there's, a, there's a, a special place here for times of crisis because, on one hand, times of crisis are exactly when you need myths. It's when people think everything's unravelling, I don't know what to believe anymore. Myths are especially powerful there. And if you reach for the wrong ones, for anti-myths, the negative impact becomes that much greater because of everything being in a condition of upheaval. The good news, I think, is that history shows over and over again that periods of great turbulence in history are also enormously fertile ground for the emergence of new myths. So if you look, for example, at where Taoism and Confucianism come from, they kind of emerge from the ferment of China's warring states period. 
um, in uh, Israel during the Babylonian exile. It's this enormously creative period where you have Jeremiah and Isaiah writing. Um, the Black Death in Europe kind of sets the stage for the Renaissance in a way, all the way through to, to the Churchill example you've just mentioned. So people know that they need these stories in conditions of crisis. Um, and, you know, I, my background's in climate change. I mean, I, I know the data very well to, to, to be able to see that we're heading into increasingly volatile and turbulent times from a climate perspective and on other fronts too. Um, so I think that we, you know, the conditions will be right for the emergence of, of new myths. I'm just um, concerned on whether they're the right ones, myths that will help us rather than hinder us. How do we use them? Okay, so I'm going to go to the audience. Hi, my name's Alison Mohammed. I'm from Shelter, the National Campaign for the Homes. Um, it's just uh, something that struck me while you're, you're talking. Your book's called The Myth Gap, um, and I thought at the beginning you were talking about that we don't have any myths, but it seems to me that you're talking about we do have myths, but they're the wrong ones, um, and you call them anti-myths. So that that's fair enough to me, because I want to be on the side of right, but if I... If I wasn't, if I was a perpetrator of anti-myths, I might just think, well, we've, we've got enough myths, thank you. We've, you know, we, don't, we don't have a gap. So I'd just be interested what you had to say about that. So, yeah, that, that's an absolutely fair point. Um, if, you, you know, if, if, if I thought that Donald Trump was great, I would not feel that there was a myth gap. <laughs> but I think, that, I think that the kind of myths... There's two points, I think, here. One is that I, I do think there's a litmus test that a good myth unites people rather than dividing them. And that's why I call these anti-myths. I think the other nuance worth picking up here is that, as I've been sort of talking to people about the book, it's interesting that, that some people still naturally assume that myth means something that's wrong. Um, and I think that, you know, myths talk about a deeper kind of a truth. Um, and... Karen Armstrong, the religious writer, has this nice little um, line where she says, you know, a myth's true if it works, if it calls forth from people the kind of behavior that's conducive to the you know, kind of society that we want to live in. Um, and I do actually think that, um, I mean, this is, this is a normative statement, not an analytical one, but I, I do think that actually there's a lot of common ground in what people want. They want safety for their kids. They want to know that they have a future. They want, you know, health care, things like that. And they want to have purpose. Um, so I'm very careful in the book to say I don't think there's any one myth or even set of myths that's going to work for everybody. I'm not looking back nostalgically to a kind of you know, religious universalism or something like that. The world is just too diverse for that. But I do think that in this kind of flatland that we're in with all of these culture wars um, and our politics kind of really fraying in the way that we see, the challenge in front of us is to be able to find not the same stories, but some kind of horrible, nerdy word, but interoperability, some kind of, you know, um, some commonality between our stories, some areas of overlap, and to understand the areas of difference. And so there's a lot of emphasis in the last part of the book on dialogue as very necessary. And that's partly being really upfront and honest about our own stories, our own personal life stories, as well as the myths that we believe, you know, bringing the personal in, but also to listening deeply. And that's what I think is manifestly absent in a lot of our politics at the moment. Hi, uh, Rupert Simons, I lead Publish What You Fund. Um, Alex, I want to follow up on the last question, actually, and go in a bit more into the myth-anti-myth distinction. Um, taking Brexit as an example. So I, I hate Brexit as much as you do, um, but it seems to me that you have to leave room in your analysis for 
a reasonable person to believe in Brexit without being labelled as sort of un yeah. unreasonable, whatever. Um, so is can you argue that Brexit is about having you know, the side that won one because they had better myths or are those actually anti-myths and they need to be they need to be combated in some way? Could you just help me through your, your thinking there? Yeah, a very fair question. Um, I mean, I think, so the first thing I'd say is you clearly have to distinguish Brexit as a policy position that you believe in from the kinds of stories that I think underpinned the Brexit campaign. I think there are completely legitimate reasons why you might really dislike the EU. I mean, you know, from a personal perspective, I, I think it's appalling, <laughs> dreadful, ineffective. I mean, I've been involved in EU climate negotiations. I find it unedifying, unhelpful. What I wish we'd had is a kind of progressive movement to reform the EU, because I think just junking it and pulling out is, is no kind of a solution. But that's the policy wonk in me talking. I think the more, more fundamental thing is just that, as I said in the talk, um, the Brexit campaign... Um, and I'm talking here about the one that Dominic Cummings was running run, rather than the UKIP one. It had brilliant, brilliant stories. Take Back Control was a brilliant story. Um, if you read, Dominic Cummings has just published um, over the last week a very long blog post on his own blog and also on The Spectator talking about how they did it. And he, you know, he's very upfront about how story was one of the things they really got right. And he talks about the NHS, £350 million a week as part of that, but also Turkey, how they went on and on about Turkey and immigration, and, you know, lots of us here are policy wonks, and we know that lots of that was factually wrong. But we tried to fight it by pointing out the factual inaccuracies, whereas I think that actually, I mean, what fascinates me is, well, if we'd gone, if we'd fought story with story and said, no, you know, we can see what you're trying to do here. It's playing on these fears of the other. It is about a them and us rather than a larger us, and we put forward a larger us story. I would have liked to see progressives doing that. But I think there's also just, you know, even if you felt analytically like the UK desperately needed to leave the EU, um, there's still a kind of a standard of responsibility that people ought to observe in terms of the stories that they tell. Because, as I said in the talk, stories are so powerful. You know, you're really unleashing powerful forces here. And that's my big problem with the Brexit campaign, more than... Um, that the policy position, which I think, you know, isn't one that I agree with, but is completely legitimate. Yeah, my name's Jonathan Carhill. I'm a fellow. I, I, I was just interested in, well, I particularly liked your idea of the larger us. I mean, how in the West you have this idea of individualism exacerbated in the States. How much do you think this counters against the larger us and the feeling of empathy that they would want to engender? That's a great question. Um, so I guess I, I have two thoughts about that. Um, one is that in the, in the chapter on the, the idea of a larger us in the book, um, I talk a lot about a guy called Robert Wright, who wrote one of my absolute all-time favorite books, a book, a book called Non-Zero, The Logic of Human Destiny. And Robert is, um, I mean, he's a fascinating polymath, but in this book, he's really using game theory uh, to explore the long-run story of human history. And what he argues is that... Um, Throughout history, you've had zero-sum interactions like wars and non-zero-sum interactions like trade. And he argues that just, he doesn't go for a teleological view of history. He's not deterministic. But he argues that the dice are basically loaded in favor of cooperation, in favor of non-zero-sum interactions, in favor of higher and higher levels of kind of complexity from the tribes <laughs> to chiefdoms to kingdoms and you know, up to where we are with globalization today. And so in that sense, you could be an avowed individualist but through kind of, you know, 
the self-interest of operating in non-zero-sum games still end up at the idea of a larger us. So in that sense, I think that there is not a tension between individualism and a larger us. At a more metaphysical level, if you like, um, I also really like the theologian Teilhard de Chardin, who some people credit with almost having imagined the internet before it happened um, with his idea of the noosphere. But de Chardin um, talked a lot about um, the idea of unity not being at odds with diversity, which, of course, is very neatly encapsulated in the American motto of a pluribus unum, out of the many one. Um, and, and for me, I, I think that really captures something that's important and true, um, that, you know, it's possible to have a synthesis that holds together without losing what makes its constituent parts different. And we see this all around us in the natural world. I mean, if you look at a rainforest, a rainforest is an entity, right? I mean, it, it coheres. It is a larger us in that regard. That is in no way at odds with the diversity in it. On the contrary, there's a symbiotic relationship between the diversity and the unity that holds it together. So at that level, more metaphysically, I also don't think that there's a tension between individualism and, uh, and a larger us. So you are the metaphysical wonk. That's what I'm <laughs> loving that. Um, thanks, Alex. Um, Richard Watkins, I'm interested in, on a, maybe on a um, smaller level, how you galvanise groups and navigate collaboration. And so your idea of a larger us, what I'm interested in, it kind of builds on the same question, really, which is where's the room for identity groups and tribalism? Um, and where's the good, because that's just a thing that humans have, right? Sort of smaller units of connection. And where's the room for that in the larger us? I mean, I, I think it's, it's very much in the same kind of space that, that we were just talking about. Um, and a bit like stories can be good or bad, and myths can be good or bad. Clearly, tribes can be good or bad. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think of the tribalism of football. You know, that is not problematic most of the time. Um, or the tribalism of, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm in a tribe that really, really likes electronic dance music. I feel <laughs> deeply tribal about it. I feel a sense of immediate affinity with other people in that tribe. Again, it's not an exclusive tribe at all. Um, and I think in a way that, you know, particularly in the kind of processes of collective storytelling that I was talking about, um, bringing out that stuff that makes us distinct, whether it's as individuals or whether it's as tribes, is important. That's part of the process. That's part of what makes it real and authentic and actually grounded in where we're all at. Um, but doesn't in any way preclude the possibility of finding common ground. But I think, you know, that's the key point about dialogue, and it's why I said a moment ago that, you know, we've kind of got to listen as well as bring our personal truth, because otherwise what you end up in is the little fragmented social media echo chambers um, where, you know, we're all comfortably in our own little tribe and we're all nodding furiously at each other, and then there's no kind of, you know, going beyond that to actually sort of finding common ground, which, you know, involves working through difficult stuff. So I think that... Tribalism's great as long as it comes with that willingness to, to do the hard work of listening and bottoming out disagreements and looking for, you know, not necessarily kind of, you know, a homogenous synthesis at the end, but some kind of, you know, a possibility of coexistence agreeing on certain kind of shared values. Are you part of the we've had enough of experts theme? <laughs> um, I, I just wonder if you're putting at risk the... the, the you know, running the risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, in a way, and whether there's a, a place for 
liberal enlightenment values within what you're talking about? Or are you sort of running with the new way of... I suppose it's back to the anti-myth and good myth thing, but uh, baby and bathwater? You know, I mean, on the experts thing, I have to admit, I feel deeply, deeply conflicted um, because, you know, I am a climate expert and I come from that world. And I don't know if you saw that cartoon The New Yorker ran um, a week or so ago. I loved it. It's of um, a guy standing up in the back of a plane going, I think we've had enough of these remote, unaccountable pilots. They're just in the front. They never talk to us. Who wants me to fly the plane? <laughs> and, and all the other passengers are putting their hands up. And I, and I sort of thought, this is the coolest cartoon I've seen all year. I'm going to pin it to the top of my Twitter feed. Then I was like, wait, what am I doing? No, I'm supposed to be publicizing a book called The Myth Gap and talking about stories. And I just felt utterly conflicted in that moment. Um, I mean, I think, you know, absolutely, we would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we said, oh, okay, we're in a post-truth politics now. Let's, let's just not bother doing climate research anymore or any other kind of research. Let's just have stories. That would clearly be nuts um, and is not for a second what what I'm calling for. But I think it's, you know, this feeling that the facts and the data alone, we keep acting as if that's enough. And my goodness, I've seen this with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I mean, the scientists on that body, a lot of them, I think, feel it would be kind of dereliction of duty to go beyond the facts. And I get it. I mean, I understand why they're really careful not to exceed their remit, because lots of people will be ready to, you know, slap them down for it. And yet, you know, if you've ever tried to read an IPCC report, that I didn't know something that, about the future of the world and my kids, you know, place in it could possibly be so boring. But, you know, it is unbelievably tedious. And we don't, you know, we haven't had the stories to bring it to life. Um, so, yeah, you're quite right that there's a risk of baby bathwater. But I don't, you know, I think it's a risk that can be managed. I think, you know, we still need the facts, but we also need the stories. Surely it's the marriage of the two. Um, I, I think I, I probably had a completely opposite career to you 10 years ago and I was a communications person in sustainability. So we would talk about you need charismatic megafauna, meaning you need a polar bear because no one cares about that iceberg. You know, so actually you've got to think there are there have been stories getting out there, but it's actually the, the marriage of the two and the depth and the resonance is, I think, what I've understood from the myth gap. Ed Dowding from uh, the Digital Democracy Platform represent. Um, Alex, I agree with an awful lot of what you say. Um, I'm a little bit concerned that it doesn't go far enough and that it's myth is very good for disrupting and, and slandering and, and poking holes in things. I mean, that's why the Tea Party works, but it's not very good at sustainably building and creating. To do that, you need to deliver. It's not, I want to go to the moon, yay. It's, we're, and we're also going to go to the moon because we're employing rocket scientists and doing that stuff. It's, you know, all this, all this um, policy wonkery around, around climate change. Meanwhile, Elon Musk is just cracking on doing science, building solar panels, building electric cars, and just making shit happen. Where, who are the people that you admire who are delivering on practical action and have that vision that can substantiate and backfill the myth that you're creating? Well, I, I think it's a false dichotomy. I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. You can't just sit having discussions about stories and then wait as if, you know, to see as if by magic things will happen in the real world. I mean, the point about stories is as motivating forces. So, you know, if I give three examples of movements that have done amazing things. I mean, the three I gave in the talk were abolition of slavery, the movement that secured equal marriage, uh, or the movement that secured the write-off of billions of dollars worth of third world debt after the year 2000. And what got those movements going in every case was really powerful, really resonant stories. Now, that's not 
for a moment to, to dispute that, you know, the huge value of what someone like Elon Musk is doing, which, I mean, I don't know Elon Musk, I don't know whether or not that's motivated for him by a sense of story. It wouldn't surprise me if it was, incidentally, but, but I don't know what that story is, so I can't comment on it. But I mean, there are some things you can solve through the technocratic stuff, through technological innovation or through new financing mechanisms or all the other stuff that we talk about wearing our policy wonk hat. There are some things you can only do with really big shifts in behavior and values and the political space that publics offer to their policymakers. And that, I think, is where we need the stories. And at the moment, you know, the, it's the anti-myths that too often are occupying that ground. And that's why the book's are kind of a plea for progressives to not just do the Elon Musky stuff, but also to get into that space as well. Hi, Nathan Tregarvan, British Council. Um, do you think the kind of positive um, myths that you're, you're saying we should start telling actually kind of are they are they kind of enticing or sexy enough to lure, lure people away from clicking on the next um, tweet from Trump? Um, and also, should we be kind of re trying to uh, put out new myths that retell uh, the anti-myths out there that will maybe ho uh, hopefully help people to see that if you follow Trump's um, uh, story, then we're going to end up in a miserable dystopian future. So should we retell his anti-myth? Interesting. Okay, so, so really fair, interesting point about whether new myths will, be entice, will entice people away from Twitter and Facebook and the kind of immediacy um, of that kind of interaction. I do struggle to see how something like Facebook or Twitter would be much of a platform for, for this kind of mythic level of story. Um, because it is so like that. Um, and I think that myths take a bit more time than that. I think they involve a level of deliberation that goes a lot deeper. Um, it does bring me back to that feeling of being very excited about the potential for new technologies like virtual mixed reality, because I think they're a whole different story um, and absolutely may prove to be conducive to that kind of much deeper level of engagement. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you can, you can track the data to go back to policy wonkery on, on attention spans, and our attention spans have shortened, um, and we need to lengthen them again, as I've argued. So in a sense, yes, I'm, I'm kind of arguing that we do need to try and entice people away, and we're going to have to try a bunch of different techniques for doing that. Um, it's not a very good answer, but yeah, that's kind of the best I can manage, I guess, on that one. It's a very fair push. Um, in terms of should we do new myths that kind of appropriate and retell the anti-myths, um, yes, but I think that we're on stronger ground when we tell our own stories rather than when we try. I mean, I think you can, there's a lot to be done to subvert those myths, including through things like satire, which obviously are not mythic. Um, but I think actually, for me, the thing that's really been missing is us having a really rooted, strong sense of this is our story um, they have their story, we'll rebut that too, but this is what we're standing for. This is the, the difference between that, the mythic level being this deeper time, deeper us, deeper yeah. reflective um, quality to it, and the campaign level, which is more at that, you know, how do we, how do we win? And we had, a, we had a different seminar around housing recently where we talked about the difference between marketing and 
building things that people wanted to buy or developing a piece of city where people wanted to live and that people want to buy for different motivations to buy reasons why people want to stay. And there's something in the similar similar vein around the difference between the mythic and the campaign in that we are not trying to win with a myth. It's actually about a story that has resonance and actually can, can help develop me as a human and be part of my core story or my core narrative that I live by. And there's that difference, I guess, where Michelle Obama said, you know, when they go low, we go high. I read that same sort of thing, which was we're really talking about what it is to be human. We're not talking about what it is to beat you at a campaign level, because really, who has time to live like that? And just to come back on the first part of your question, I mean, I, I think when people look particularly at millenn millennials as a generation, there is this assumption that you know millennials spend their whole lives on social media and they have the shortest attention spans of anyone. But there's a piece of research that two friends of mine, Casper Takayle and Angie Thurston, did, which they talk about in the book, which fascinates me. They're, two, um, they're based at Harvard Divinity School. And what they have researched in a report they wrote together called How We Gather is the idea that among millennials, millennials are the least religiously observant generation probably ever. Um, and yet, they're increasingly gathering in, um, in kind of forums and communities that kind of look a bit like religious communities, but without God. Um, so, you know, they, they've got a fascinating range of examples, things like CrossFit and SoulCycle. They say, well, look, here are eight criteria uh, that, you know, religious communities have tended to exhibit, like, sort of, you know, um, aiming for transformation, holding each other to account, a sort of, you know, deep sense of story. You really find those traits in these places, but they're not religious in the sense we think of that at all. Um, and there's really something there in that report. They talk about this very disparate, as I say, group of kind of networks and communities. But there is that, um, that real search going on for places where a deeper kind of conversation is possible, a sense of belonging and meaning and purpose, all these things that we've been talking about, none of which are you know, just going for clicks and likes on social media, all of which are kind of deeper than that. So I think that the, the hunger is out there. Um, and that actually it's, it's kind of, you know, it's starting to, to take flight in a lot of new, really interesting forms. So that's for a whole other day, the, the mythic qualities of CrossFit and hot yoga, we can come back to that. <laughs> Please do join me in thanking Alex Evans. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the rsa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.